Now, I'm wondering how many of you guys despise this. Um, I wonder how many of you despise this. This is the, uh, the ever classic cold shoulder. Um, <laughs> it's like one of the funniest things that are a part of our lives. I'm wondering this. How much time, if you were to like pack it into a time frame, how much time have you spent in your life either receiving the cold shoulder or giving it? Or maybe the better question is, like, what's the longest span you've gone where you haven't been giving the, the cold shoulder to someone? Who right now, if you walked into a room with, like, in your life, would you be, you know, I really think it's misappropriately named. Cold shoulder, really it should be called cold shoulders, you know? I mean, when you're, when you're ignoring someone, it's like both. It's just the awkwardest thing, isn't it? You both know what you're both doing, and it's both stupid, you know? It just, it feels so childish. I mean, it's like, what, what are, I mean, grown adult spouses over the silliest of things, you know, like, like whether it's runny mac and cheese like I like it or, you know, um, like chunky mac and cheese like my wife likes it. Like over something stupid, I'll ignore her for 15 minutes and then she'll have to ask me if something's wrong. Yes, you made the mac and cheese incorrectly, again, you know. It's like we spend so much time ignoring each other instead of dealing with our problems. Uh, some of you guys are pro cold shoulderishisms people. Uh, how many of you guys would consider yourself that? You're, you're pro. You're pro at the cold shoulder. Anyone? You're cold shouldering me right now. Precisely. Precisely the point. Okay? You're like, what? I don't know. Um, <laughs> now, how many of you have ever felt like, like God is giving you the cold shoulder? Like he's ignoring you, like he's not answering your prayers, like he's not interested, like he's got something better to do, a better world to save, a better person to pour into. Um, listen, here, here's where I'm at tonight, and I'm just going to, this is all either a joke or it's real. There's no in between for me. So all this, like being here together, it's either a joke, and we're all here like, huh, you know. It's either a joke, like we're just kind of fooling ourselves, we're trying to give ourselves some anecdotes at a better life after death, or what we're talking about here is real. And so where I'm at tonight is, um, I, I believe it's real, and so because of that, tonight, maybe even more so than, than previous nights, or at least in a long time, I'm going to approach tonight extremely candidly with you. One of the most dangerous lies that you can ever believe is that God's giving you the cold shoulder, that he's disinterested, okay? And thankfully, we have an unbelievable story in the entire Exodus chapter 19 to learn about God's intentions, to see what God is doing. Does God have limits? Does God have boundaries? Does God set parameters? Has he ever set a parameter with you? Has he ever held you at arm's bay? All of these questions we're going to answer tonight, but it's going to require every single one of you, no matter where you're at in your journey, no matter whether some of you guys walked in here saying, I don't want anything to do with God, or for those of you that would consider yourselves the most hardcore Christians ever, okay, no matter where you're at, I'm going to pray right now that God grabs your heart with this text like he's grabbed mine. Is that cool? I'm going to pray that. We're going to wait and see and watch what happens and study Exodus chapter 19 together. So let's pray, okay? Father God. You have given us this word for intentional reasons, of which tonight I pray you will reveal. 
I, sh- I pray, God, that you will show us why Exodus chapter 19 is even in the Bible, why this story is even recorded, why you took the time to pen this, God. So I pray right now that you would gather us collectively as a community, that you would challenge us, and that you would change us. We need you, God, to come in your great holy name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So open your Bibles, the real ones, or your phones to Exodus uh, chapter 19. We've been watching the Israelites journey through the wilderness on their way in a long time to the promised land. They've had a lot of issues God has provided along the way, and tonight is a transitional chapter. Next week, if you've read ahead, is the Ten Commandments. Yes, the ever-classic Ten Commandments. Uh, We're going to stretch it out over seven weeks. So there's literally going to be weeks in the next seven where we, where we like, study five words, okay? Uh, other weeks are going to study a couple commandments. It's going to be a blast. They're going to use testimony, all kinds of fun things. The Ten Commandments are going to be epic. We're going to have, like, a couple stone tablets, and I'm going to speak, and Jared's going to speak in Charlton Heston voices, and, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but this, this chapter is transitional. It's different. And here's why. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, for those not familiar with uh, vampire talk, this is a a month. Um, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of, what's the word? Sinai. Cue the map. Here we go. Here's Sinai. It's there at the bottom. So they've kind of reached the the southernmost tip of their journey, highlighted in green. Uh, Mount Sinai is is also uh, called Mount Horeb. Interesting to note that God promised Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 that he, would, that he would land back here, and here he is. Here's a good picture that I drew this morning with a pen. Um, this is, uh, it, it kind of looks like there's a him, you know, hidden face in it. It kind of looks like Mount Rushmore gone bad or something. Like you can see kind of eyes and a very large nostril. Um, it's hard to pin down the exact geography of Mount Sinai, but this is close. So as we go through this story tonight, have something like this in your mind. I love verse 2. Check this out. They set out from Rephidium and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. As for me and my house, some of the best things in the world are mountains. Look, if I could have my way with the weather, like, do it and, and rocks... There would be a, a large mountain in St. Charles, and there would just be like a snow cloud hovering over it, and we would ski um, to work, and we would ski to, we would ski to Jesus Chicken, Chick-fil-A, you know, we, we would ski to, we would, we would, like we would just ski everywhere, you know? Listen, come on now, let's have a moment. Every single one of you guys who have ever been to a mountain, and for the rest of you, you're lame, but every single one of, a, one of you who have been to a mountain, you know this, there's this like weird thing that happens. You like, you're listening to your iPad or you just are making up a soundtrack in your mind and all of a sudden you're by yourself. You just start feeling romantic, you know? And, and it's weird. It's, it's over, maybe that's just me. I don't know. But it's overwhelming. There's something about a mountain that's overwhelming because it instantly puts you in, in your place. Like it instantly is like you're nothing, you know? Yes, you can throw some, you know, some, some plastic shoes on and go down this real fast, but but you have to wrestle with every single person who's ever been to a mountain, how did these get here? So whether you're a creationist or an explosionist, uh, the mountains for me, um, the mountains for me 
are the reality that God has done something. And so here they are again at a mountain. Doesn't have snow on it, but either way, verse 3. While Moses went up to God, then the Lord called to him out of the mountain. God, talking out of a mountain. Okay, burning bush so far. Um, we, we've seen him in a cloud and a pillar. Now the scripture says, and we have no other way to interpret this, he's talking out of a mountain. The animated children's story would show like the mountain with a mouth, you know, like talking at him. I, I don't think that's quite the image. But here's what God starts to say. Saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. God, out of a mountain, talking to Moses, cue the jealousy. Has anyone through this whole journey been jealous of Moses' interaction with God? Aren't you like, God, if, if you would talk to me out of a mountain, I would believe you 100%. Right? Like, God, right now, if, if I were on a mountainside and you started speaking and the mountain started shaking, God, I'm guaranteeing you right now I would believe in you. The jealousy starts to awaken. Like, it happens with other Christians, too. You get around a believer who God has just spoken to clearly. I mean, his word has just impacted their heart, and you can just tell. They're like lit up like a Christmas tree. I mean, they're just, they're, un, they're fired up, they're pat, man, just, God has done something. And in your heart, you're like, I wish God would, I wish God would talk to me like that, too. You know, you kind of throw like your God communication pity party. Um, it's really weird, though, to know and believe that this same thunderous voice from a mountain is literally the same voice that is speaking through his word. And some of you who have been here a while, you're like, Mark, I'm tired of hearing you talk about the power of, of the Bible. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's going to be a long road for you to hell around here. I mean, it's just God's word to me is, I mean, is often that thunderous voice, the unexplainable, like, how, God, how, how did you know that? Like, how are you reading my mail? God, how did you look so deeply into my heart right now? Your, your word is so powerful. We have access through God's word, just like Moses does right now to the thunderous voice. We shouldn't be jealous. Actually, Moses should be jealous of us. We have inside of us the Holy Spirit. Moses did not have that. We have access to God that is beautiful, my friends. Here's what God goes on to say. And verse 4, I mean, this verse 4 just has me. Check this out. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on what? Eagle's wing. You know, it's like. Some of, your, some of your favorite verses, you know, favorite verse in the Bible, like it used to be the, the eagle's wing, the classic eagle, eagle's wing verse. Uh, what is he saying here? Well, I did a little bit of research on eagles. And, of course, you had to, you know, many of your first roller coaster had to do with an eagle. Um, when you were growing up, screaming eagle, like, wasn't that some of your first roller coaster? Now I am 100% deathly af afraid to get on that thing, right? Some of you are still struggling with whiplash from, like, nine years old from that, aren't you? <laughs> You like I've been going to the chiropractor since preschool. Like, I don't know what happened. Screaming eagle, you know, and this friend in front of me threw up. And, I mean, it was just a horrible interaction. Um, apparently, eagles often, in teaching their young how to fly, as I would know, I'm an eagleist, um, they, they put their young uh, on their wings and they literally like just take them out to flight. And, and often, so I've read, like the young will just begin to, you know, to fly right off their wings. Well, God is, is painting a picture here that, listen, nation of Israel, I've taken you on my wings. You have not done a darn thing. I have guided you. I have led you. And please, if you miss anything, 
tonight. Please do not miss this. And here's what he says. And I brought you to what? To myself. God's done a lot. He's redeemed them from slavery 430 years. He's pulled them out of the bondage of the Egyptians. Generation after generation of Israelites died in Egypt in slavery. He's redeemed them. And yet the thing that God chooses to say here is that he's brought them to himself. In other words, the greatest thing that God has done, the most significant thing that God has done, is he has taken this people and he has brought them to himself. One of the most misguided teachings in Christianity is that the most significant thing that God does, listen to this, is save us from our sins so that we can go to heaven. You're like, Mark, how is that misguided? That's the message I grew up believing. God saved us from our sins and we're going to heaven. And you're like, Mark, isn't that true? It is 100% true. That is 100% true. He saved us from our sins and in Christ we're going to heaven. And so I grew up with the premise that like, all right, so, so this whole existence is about it's about heaven and awaiting heaven and one day we'll get there and, and in the meantime we know we'll be there. One of the most misguided teachings is believing that. Why? The most significant thing God ever does for you or for me is bringing us to himself. Is drawing us near. Is breaking the wall of hostility. Is showing us that we're his kids. How does he do that? Yes, through Christ by the forgiveness of our sins, so that we can be reconciled to God. But do not be mistaken. The greatest thing he does, my friends, is draw us near to himself. Proximity to God. Nearness to God. Closeness to God. And so the question that's pertinent to ask at this juncture is, do you want to be near him? I see many believers that I'm around, I get the impression that they really just want the fringe benefits. They want a good network of friends. They want forgiveness. They definitely want to get out of hell free card. But when it comes to get, when it comes to getting close to God, like that, you tried that before and that didn't go so well because light and darkness they don't mix, and so you couldn't live like hell and somehow approach God. It bothered you. And so, listen, some of you here tonight. Here's what you're doing. You're claiming the Lord and running as far away from God as possible. You're thanking the Lord for forgiveness and then running from him as far as you possibly can, believing in your heart that the fringe benefit is still yours. One of the greatest misguided teachings is that forgiveness of sin is our greatest thing. And you know what it does then? Is it halts people's search of the character of God. And I finally feel like, honestly, in years and years of trying to explain this, I finally feel like I understand. Because the character of God is, my, is the biggest thing that I teach. You guys have been here for a while, you know that that's what we teach. And I've always tried to understand why. And this is exactly why. We grow up learning that the greatest thing that God does for us is forgive our sins and not draw us to himself. If the greatest thing he does is bring us to proximity with him, then we long to know that God more. Do you guys see what I'm saying? So, before we move, gauge yourself tonight. 
Take a moment. Look into the depths of your heart. Do you feel far from God? Are you running from God? Is your sense that you're intimately connected tonight? Where are you at? Now let's watch what happens with the Israelites. Now therefore, God says in verse 5, still talking to Moses, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, whoa, whoa if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, keep my commandment, this, this feels like an equation again, like God is setting stipulations. If he was saying stipulations, then we would have had the caca verse, right? Well, what does he say? You didn't do a darn thing. I saved you. I brought you to myself. I'm God. That's what I've done. So this, this whole uh, response in obedience and keeping the commandment then is just a response to what God has done in initiating. So this isn't an equation. Here's what he says. You shall be my what? My what? Treasured possession. This is awesome. He says three things to the Israelites. And the first, you'll be my treasured possession. You will be a royal possession. Um, in ancient um, kingdoms, there would be those who would be very, very close to the king, the ruler, the leader, however it was that it was set up. And if there was a coup d'etat, one of my favorite words to learn in history, do you guys remember this? It's like an overthrow of, you know, with a lot, it's just awesome, a coup d'etat, like someone rises up in rebellion, just awesome stuff. So if a coup d'etat happens, uh, in general, the coup d'etatting will, will slay the king and also the king's peeps, right? So if you're a possession of royalty and that royalty dies, then you're not such a royal possession no more, right? We all understand. If you're a royal possession of a king who dies, no more possession of royalty. So then what does it say about a king who doesn't die? What does it say about the royal possessions of a king who doesn't die? It's not just in this moment that the Israelites are representing a royal possession. It's that you, in Christ, are called a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession, and that is yours in Christ eternally. Like, listen, there will not be a coup d'etat of our king ever. No one will overthrow him. No one's coming in with a bigger sword and going to cut off our God's head. It's not going to happen, which means what? You, in Christ, are an eternal royal possession. Celebrate that, man. That's unbelievable. He doesn't just say that, though. Look what he says. Among all people, and here's what God says, and I love this. He just drops the straight mic on this one. For all the earth is mine. Moses hearing this from a thunderous, mountainous voice. All the earth is mine. Now, if you ever had a conversation about someone um, in terms of world religions, the go-to Christian uh, verse is uh, Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one has come to the Father but through me. That's what we say, right? So Buddha, not a god. Joseph Smith, definitely not a god. Um, all of these other things, they're not gods um, because Jesus said he's the only way to heaven. Well, how about God saying this? All the earth is mine. He's making pretty clear that he possesses everything. That all these other lowercase gods are not gods at all. The earth is mine, Moses hears. And then look at this. And you shall be with me, he calls them, 
a kingdom of priests. Nowhere else in the Old Testament. Is the, only phrase, the only time we see this phrase in the entire Old Testament. So, so what is he saying? A priest is, uh, could you stand up with me here, brother, please? Okay, could you also stand up with me? Okay, come here real quick. I'm going to show you. This will be, actually, could you sit down? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I just used you yeah, last week. Okay. So a priest, if I represent the people and my brother represents God, okay, um, fair enough, um, a priest is the, is the mediator between the two of us, okay? So a priest is the one that represents me as the people to God, and at times God to the people, okay? Thank you, guys. So when the scripture says, when God says, like, you are a kingdom of priests, what he's saying is, you are going to represent me to all of these other people, and, and as it were, all these nations that you're going to be journeying by. You are a kingdom of priests. You are going to show people who I am. Well, if you attach yourself to heaven and not the character of God, how in the world are you going to show the world who he is? And better, by your life right now, what are you communicating about the character of God? If I just took you as a case study, and we started to learn from all of your actions, all the things you say, we started to learn about the God that you serve, what would we learn? What would be in the notebook? What lessons would we sketch out? It starts to get... Pretty, pretty real at that point, doesn't it? That's what he calls them. You're priests. You are representing. And then he finally says you're a holy nation. Three things. Embodies in them a possession of God's, and the earth is all of his. These are the words that you shall speak uh, in, a, in a verse 6 to the people of Israel. That's what God tells Moses. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. So he calls the big boys, the guns, the you know, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel, 1.5 million Israelites, all these elders, he communicates to them. And look what verse 8 says. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What in their track record, like, communicates this? How all of a sudden did they become captain obeyers, you know? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Coming from the same mouths that just on the other side of seeing a parted sea, we're complaining about no food and no agua for the bilingual, right? Like their track record is, is by far spotless. So what prompts them all of a sudden to make some kind of empty promise? And spoiler, spoiler alert, okay, for those of you guys that watch The Bachelorette, you know exactly what this is. I hate that show. It's like legal porn is what it is. Seriously, it's horrible. Okay? But you know, like, spoiler, you can figure out who wins in the end. Listen, they don't do well with this. God will do whatever you say. No, you won't. Not even close. Right? So why do they make this promise? You know why. Because you've done it too. Um, I remember times where caught in sin, entrapped, 
in the shoulder, hands in my hair, God, I'll never, ever, ever disobey you again. And then give me about half an hour. You guys have found yourselves um, communicating to God, bargaining with God. God, I promise I will never, ever, ever disobey you again. I'll never indulge in this sin again. God, I'll never go back. I promise, God, we won't ever struggle with that again as a couple. And so what, what does it say about you then when you do? I don't think their intentions are bad. But don't you think it would be more helpful if they said, Lord, help us? God, our intention is that we would do everything that you would command. Please help us. Because we know how slippery the slope is. Maybe it's better than to not make God empty promises, but to plead for his help. Maybe it's better for some of you dudes who are on a, the cyclical pattern of pornography that instead of telling God that you won't ever do it again, that just to plead for his help. Or maybe for some of you guys that are struggling in physical relationships right now in your dating world, and every single time you fail and struggle, you have the same conversation. Man, we sh- you know, God wouldn't want this, and this is tearing us apart and tearing us apart from the Lord. Maybe instead you should, um, you should plead that God would stir repentance in your heart and not just, I'm sorry. Maybe for those of you guys that are going back to the same addictions, the same well, with the faucet of your flesh over and over and over, and each night you give yourself solace because you tell God that you're sorry, maybe you should start crying out for help. Isn't it interesting that we have help at our access, and instead we've, come prof- we, we've become professional I'm sorry's. I'm sorry, God, I'll never do it again. And then tomorrow, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do it again. And the next day, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do it again. Instead of, God, please help me. I'm nothing without you. I need you desperately. I don't want to make another empty promise. Aren't you tired of the empty promises? Aren't you tired of making them? Aren't you tired of the perpetual shame that comes in not being able to follow through? Stop saying I'm sorry, ask for forgiveness, repent, turn from your sin, and plead for the Lord's help, friends, right? Like there, all of a sudden, we find obedience that is matched and empowered by the grace of the Lord. So they say, in response to all this, God, we're going to do everything that you say. And interestingly enough, Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord as if the Lord needed it. So God, I know you're sovereign and all, but here's what the people said, right? And God answers before he speaks. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, which is a great thunder, like that, like of course, he's talking from a mountain. You have to say the word behold, you know, it just makes more sense. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, as opposed to a cirrus, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and that you may also believe, uh, and, th- and they may also believe you forever. In other words, I'm going to talk to you, we're going to have intimacy, And because of your intimacy, they're going to believe in you. Moses, you have access to me. I'm going to come in a cloud. Because of that, the people are going to believe. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, look at this, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. So now God's saying they need to prepare. Um, I know many of you guys have spent some time in a dorm room before. Um... You don't relate with this well. Um, the, time that, the times that your garments get washed are, uh, are kind of every major holiday. 
you know, there, there's unfortunately been a pair of undergarments, you know, that maybe some of you are currently residing in uh, that haven't been washed since New Year's, you know? Um, right? Did any of you guys in college just use the sniff test? Right next, listen, right next to your laundry basket, a can of Febreze, right? And a bottle of like cool water, like the cheapest Walmart clone there is, you know? And finally, like, finally, like, you know, one day at class, a buddy of yours was like, um, I'm pretty sure I'm smelling a mix between BO, cool water, and Febreze. And, and it's really not working for you, you know? Um, God commands them to wash their garments. But the question is why? It's a preparation for what God's getting ready to do. You must prepare yourself. Get yourself ready. And by the way, where's the, where's the water source? You know? Like, I mean, you should be washing your clothes. You have ample water source. Okay? Worst case scenario, like go to, go to the Missouri. Okay? Not saying they're going to come up not brown, but, you know, at least you've got a water source. Like God's calling them to, to wash their clothes. And where's the water source? The last water we saw was coming out of a rock. Okay? And he, here he says in verse 11, Be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Outside of being a great 90s band, the third day here has to be, has to be, making allusion and reference like to the power of the third day. Be ready for the third day. I love this. God's going to come down and speak. Now verse 12 and 13, and my friends, the wrestling begins. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be what? Put to death. And some of you now should be like, what kind of God is this? Whoever touches the mountain, they die. They come too close, they die. And then he adds this. In verse 13, no hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or, what, shot? This struck me as odd because this, I'm pretty sure, this is like pre-gun, you know? Right? I mean, you don't hear about like the Israelites and their machine guns, you know? Like taking out the, you know, it's not Joshua fought the battle of Jericho with large weaponry. I mean... Let me clear it up. Uh, this, is like, this is like Robin Hood style, okay? This is like shot with an arrow, all right? They'll be stoned or shot. Look at this. Really interesting. Whether beast or man. So if a beast gets near the mountain and touches it, the beast dies. I mean, the poor random sheep, you know? They're like, huh, you know, huh. He, he's like, like edging, edging up to the mountain, you know, like innocently going to grab some grass and ixnay on the Upens Day. I mean, this, this seems, Lion King reference, this seems horrible, you know? This seems horrible. It's actually, I think, really, really powerful imagery. Check this out. Um, Moses, in this case, is the shepherd of all these people, and, and he's going to have to lead them. They're going to have to understand this moment. And there's a lot to understand for them and for us. Is God giving them the cold shoulder? Is this the picture of a God who sets boundaries and limits that he won't go back on? 
Is this a God that holds his people at bay? Is this a God that will communicate to you and I, get too close, and you die? Is this the kind of God that you believe in? Has this God changed or shifted? Moses is going to have to lead his people. When the trumpet sounds into verse 13, like a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So here's what happens. Moses goes down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments together. And then really funny, verse 15, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. What kind of command is this, you know? Brilliant command, okay? In fact, I'm just going to say right now, some of you guys, this needs to be your favorite verse of the Bible. Some of you guys need to get this tatted, right? Just on your, you know, on your buys, whatever. Do not go near a woman. You know, and, and it's kind of funny on, the, on one side, but on the other side, like how much more are you going to demean a female? How much more are you going to make her feel worthless? How much more are you going to use her? Like some of you guys seriously need to adapt to this. Do not go near a woman. Until you and the Lord are in proximity, intimately, please do not go near a woman. What hangs in the balance is a precious daughter of God and her heart. And it is way better for you to not go near her than have the potential of damaging her. But what happens, my young brothers, is that as you, as you pursue the Lord, and Scripture says in James, draw near to him, and he draws near to you, God does an amazing work in your heart, and you see her as he sees her. And until you see her through his eyes, do not go near a woman. But when you see her through the, the lens of the Lord, you will protect her, you will guard her heart, you will treat her as precious, you will not use and abuse her, and if the Lord graces you with that woman to marry, then you'll find yourselves on that wedding night being able to consecrate your marriage in a beautiful way that has been kept pure. That is the beauty of this moment. I think in so many terms, that's what Moses wants for his people and God. Like, look, let's not have any potential distraction here. Men, women together, potential distraction. Don't go near a woman. Get ready. The third day is coming. On the morning, verse 16 of the third day, here we go, boom. There were thunders. Has anyone in your life ever said the word thunder and it, it was plural? This tells you it was epic, right? <laughs> Think about it. Have you ever said, oh, you know, man, it's there's a lot of thunders out there. Like, no, you've never said that ever in your life, you know? <laughs> I looked it up in the Hebrew, it's plural here. I, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders, and not just thunders, but yes, there were lightnings too. <laughs> right? Have you ever said no? And a thick cloud on the mountain and a very large trumpet blast that comes from nowhere so that all the people in the camp, and what's the word? They what? Come on. They trembled. They shook. God comes and people tremble. That's what happens in the presence of God. God comes, people tremble. When people don't tremble, it says they don't awe God. Let me just ask, point blank, when was the last time you trembled? I mean, literally shaking because God's presence was so intense. His grace so thick. When God's presence comes, trembling happens. If not, it shows us that we're not taking him serious. 
Just thinking about the Lord and the reality of who he is should cause a trembling, a shaking. So verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Like a meet and greet, you know? I can't help but in my mind and my heart have this image. Moses brings all these people. And the intention of the journey is that they're going to meet God. I can't help but think of a Christ as the cross was on his shoulders. Every step he was making, every whip he was taking, being spat on, that following in his train were everyone who would believe in him that he was taking to meet God. I can't help but think, as he's hanging on the ancient execution stake, that every piece of shame and regret and sin that was being pushed on his shoulders, I can't help but think of those moments all of us in Christ, in his train, going to meet God. And I can't help but think, on a third day, as the stone is in reality rolled away, and not just in some Easter Christian idiom, that as our king walks out the tomb, behind him, those of you in this room who are in Christ, who he has taken to meet God. This moment for them and those moments for us, priceless. And yet at the same time, it cost Jesus everything. Moses takes everyone out of the camp. They meet God. And the scripture says they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Uh, uh, cue the picture. I, uh, this, I made this this morning with crayons. Um, pretty detailed too. Pretty impressive, isn't it? This only took me like 15 minutes. Um, I know it's hard to get an image from a comic strip or something here. But, I mean, this is pretty decent, I think. Massive cloud of smoke, a whole bunch of people. God speaking. I mean, this is, this is that moment. Okay? Verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. I mean, this is a powerful scene. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. I mean, imagine watching all this. You're seeing smoke and fire and God speaking in thunder the, uh, then the Lord, verse 20, came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. If you're keeping track, this is journey for Moses, number two up the mountain, and I'm already getting tired. Dude is old. He's 80 plus. He'll make three trips up and down the mountain in this, right? I get to, like, I, the, the thought of hiking right now at my age, like, gives me a heart attack, right? I mean, imagine God like, hey, it's time to come back up. Moses like, Seriously? Like, can't we? No, come on, Bo, right? The Lord came down to Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look 
and many of them perish. Here we see the same language. You go warn them. If they get close, they die. Why is God doing this? What is God's intention? Why is he warning them? Um, they're coming from where? What, what land? They're coming from where? Where are they coming from? Come on. Egypt. Thank you. Some of you are like, Wentzville? I don't know. <laughs> They're coming from Egypt. In Egypt, not monotheistic. Monotheistic means belief in one God. Okay. In Egypt, there were um, idols, multiple gods, gods for everything. It was a land filled with idolatry, much like our own. So listen to this. Here's what God's saying in this whole scene. Here's his intentions. Oh, so um, your God is something that you can make? Oh, so, so your God can be like carved out of wood or gold or silver? Oh, so, so your God like, like sits somewhere in your home. Your God, you actually put underneath your pillow and sleep at night. Your God, you let dangle from your rearview mirror in hopes that it's going to help you in some form of an accident. Is that what your God is? By showing these things and giving these warnings to this group of people, God is saying, I'm not those non-existent gods. Those gods are exactly as described, made with human hands and human thoughts. Carved out of wood. What God is saying is, I'm not that kind of God. I'm the real God, the capital letter God. You approach me in my awesomeness and you die. And all of you are like, but Mark, that doesn't seem theologically accurate. Okay, what happened in Eden? God makes Adam from what? Dust and Eve from what? Ribs. One of the best youth conferences I ever did, I called Dust and Ribs. Okay? A bunch of teenagers learned about sexuality. It was the best name ever. Dust and Ribs. Okay? Okay? You can steal it for all of you going in youth ministry. Dust and Ribs. Go for it. He makes man from dust, females from ribs. Then what happens? God says, listen, don't do this. I'm giving you some very clear instructions. Satan, the communist, comes in. I'm not attributing. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Satan comes in and he says, did God really say? And what happens? They indulge. And then what happens at the end of the story? In Genesis 3, what happens? God sends them what? Out of Eden. They, they had fellowship with God. I mean, they were, they were walking around the garden with God. I mean, this is a beautiful picture. And then God says, now, because one have sinned, Romans 5 says, now all have sinned. Sin now disconnects people from God. That's a piece of this. It's not just fear of him. It's that God cannot be in proximity ever with sin, Period. If any single one of you right now approaches God with your awesomeness, hey God, so here's all the, God, I serve 25 homeless people today. Yeah, 26, I forgot about one. God, I mean, I've been hospitable, I've given, you know, all kinds of money and resources and time. God, I told people about you like seven and a half times today. And you approach the, the mountain of God with those things. Here, God, here's all the awesome things. And you know what is imminent for you? It's death. And that, that seems weird to say. Because every other world religion is based on your works. But that is the reality. You approach the mountain of God with your works and you die. That's truth. You die. 
Death is imminent. Disconnect from God. God cannot be connected to self-righteousness ever. So is this too much of a different picture than you and I? No, no. It's the same God, same deal, same situation. You approach me without a high priest, without a mediator, without a set, then I'm God. I can't be near sin. And then he says in verse 22, let, also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves. Lest the Lord break out against them. I and mean, this is like, it seems harsh. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate us. Like, is this God setting limits, setting boundaries? I, I, I don't want to be near people. Is this, is this God? And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. I was like, I'm tired, God. Please, no more trips. And Aaron's old too, you know. But do not let the priests... Um, But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, does God give people the cold shoulder? Does he put his arm out? Does he not want proximity? Is this God? Let me ask you a question. Right now. Do you feel far from God? I know the word feel there can get a little bit interesting. But do you feel far from Him? Maybe you're gauging it because there was a one time in your life where you felt near. And you know what that feels like. And you know what that sense is. But right now, wherever you're at, do you feel far? Have you believed that that is better? That nearness to God only means disaster, conviction. That nearness to God does not benefit. Listen, has the enemy deceived you so much to believe that staying far from God is actually the best way to live? Here's what our good friend Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people get saved after this sermon. And here's what he says. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's a whole bunch of people hearing the gospel. Hearing the truth of Christ. Hearing what Christ has done. And so they get to this place where they want to respond. What should we do then? Here's what Peter says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive, other screen, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children, and look, and what else? And, and for all who are what? Come on, who are far off. Everyone who is far off, there is a promise for you. Everyone who feels far, everyone who is far, everyone who's disconnected, there is a promise for you. And that promise is this next text from Ephesians chapter 2. Check this out. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been what? 
brought near by the blood of Christ. The work of the cross is nearness to God. And that nearness to God, my friends, please hear this, is exactly what we need. Do we need forgiveness of sins? Yes. Do we want to go to heaven? Yes, because we want to spend an eternity being near God. Christians, do you want to be near God or just receive the benefits? Do you want to be in proximity, intimately connected, knowing more of his character? Or do you just want God to look down and tell you all the time that you're a people of his own possession? I want to know this God. I want to pursue this God. I want to seek this God. I want to be in deep relationship with this God. And I'm telling you tonight, he invites it. But not on your own. That will fail miserably in every attempt. But through Christ, the far are brought near. And so, my friends, what happens tonight if all of the far in Christ came near? What would that look like? What would happen for those of you that feel incredibly far away in Christ? You're like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm done believing that crap lie from the enemy. I'm done. I'm done. I want to be near the one source of true life. What would that look like tonight? We have a chance to share in the celebration of this proximity. I'm going to invite my leaders to come up with me. God has given us in Christ this amazing meal of remembrance. Here's what this meal of remembrance is. It's a meal that says, thank you, God, that in your son... We can be connected to you. And so tonight we have a chance to come and pull off a piece of this bread in remembrance of the broken body of Christ that's been shed. And as we tear a piece of this bread off and we dip it in the cup, it's remembering the blood of Christ. That in the blood of Jesus, man, we are brought near the King the sovereign, ruling, reigning Lord of the entire universe. You can know that God. That, listen, this meal tonight is a meal of solemn celebration. Solemn in that our repentance must be real. And celebration knowing that forgiveness and salvation and proximity to God is ours tonight. Listen, church, it's ours, amen? amen. You do not have to believe the lie one more day. We can be near God. And so tonight, in these moments, let's respond in this meal. Let's come near together and enjoy what Christ has for us. God, I pray in the hearts right now of my friends, in those that because of their sin feel so distant, like they're running the other direction, or for those, God, that have never believed before. Or for those that enter tonight in close union with you. I pray for all three categories of people. That we would know and believe. Maybe for the first time. Or maybe remembering what we've forgotten. That we would believe that we must be near to you. Help us believe that tonight. Church, respond when you're ready.